Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Spokane, Washington. Brought to you by Gordon Physical Therapy. And now, here's your host, Dr. Luke Gordon. Hey everybody, this is Luke Gordon. Uh, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the podcast. And this is the first podcast episode, the first full-length episode, where it's just going to be me. Um, it's summertime right now in Spokane, and um, you know I'm usually pretty good about booking my guest interviews, but people get busy in the summer, and uh, myself included. And um, so I don't have a guest today, but this is something that I've been planning on talking about for quite a while anyway. So this is good timing for me um, just to mix in uh, like I said, just kind of a solo uh, podcast episode today. And the focus today is just on natural, simple ways that people can reduce pain and inflammation. And to give you a little bit more of a background on the topic itself, um, it, it seems like a lot, one of the most common complaints we get nowadays, whether it's the the patients we see in the clinic, you know, at Gordon Physical Therapy, or just people you talk to, is the growing frustration from from people with feeling like they're just kind of farmed out for various aspects of their healthcare. Um, and this leads into, you know, the specialists. So, you know, you've got a stomach issue. So you go see a GI specialist. Um, you've got a heart issue. So you see a cardiac specialist. You've got a metabolic issue, you know, like diabetes or any number of the other ones like Hasha, um, Hashimoto's, you know, any of, the, of those um, diseases there, you're going to go see an endocrinologist. And people end up getting frustrated because they never feel like there's any one person that's kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together and treating the system as a whole. So treating the person as a whole. And so that's what this is going to be about today is just... Um, just that idea that there's underlying causes of multiple conditions. And when you really break it down uh, into a simplest form, most of these issues that we see, again, whether it's a stomach issue, a heart issue, you know, for us in physical therapy, it's a musculoskeletal issue like pain in a joint or pain in a muscle. The common underlying factor of the whole system is that there's inflammation. So inflammation um, can basically damage and affect negatively any system in your body. And so again, the frustration being again with people that they don't feel like the underlying issues are being treated, uh, the symptoms are being treated and they're often being treated um, with pharmacology, so medications, you know, no one's saying, well, geez, yes, you've got this GI issue and you have this uh, endocrinology issue and you have this musculoskeletal issue and you have headaches and you have fatigue and autoimmune issues and all these things. What can we do to have a positive effect on everything as opposed to farming you out to five, six, eight different specialists who know a lot and are very valuable for, you know, for disease pathology and things like that. But not one of them is going to take the lead and really treat you as a whole system. So again, that's the background for um, why I want to talk about this. And uh, you know, one of my passions is uh, autoimmune disease, and that's because I have such a strong family history of autoimmunity. And so I'll give you a little bit of my background here in just a minute too. Um, but all of these things, again, we're going to focus on the fact that the underlying factor or the commonality between multiple issues is uh, ongoing inflammation. And that could be inflammation in that specific region, you know, inflammation of the gut, inflammation of just the whole entire nervous system and immune system. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I actually have 
eight things that I have on my list, which to me is going to be too much for one episode. So I'm going to split it into two episodes. So today we're going to talk about the first four and then I'll, uh, I'll do another episode probably in the next couple of weeks to a month on, um, the second four. Uh, so we're going to get into the first four today and, um, with any luck, this will be relevant to you or someone, you know, and, um, again, let's just kind of switch our perspective from saying, well, Luke, I have a specific problem. That's what I want to listen to the podcast about is my specific problem. Chances are, regardless of what your problem is, you're going to find some useful information today, just because it's going to help you decrease inflammation throughout the entire system. So keep that in mind as we go. Like I said, we'll get into the top or the first four today. So a little more background on me first, just again, um, if you're wondering, you know, Luke, how do you know about this stuff? Are you a reliable source? Things like that. Um, the, the most experience I have, uh, firsthand experiences with autoimmune disease. So with my history, I have rheumatoid arthritis, so commonly known as RA, just the acronym there for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so I've had that, uh, I've had that for just about 15 years. Um, so diagnosed when I was 21, uh, just kind of on the tail end of college. And, and back then in college, I was real active. You know, I didn't, I was one of those lucky people who didn't have to work while they went to school. Um, so thanks mom and dad for that. <laughs> Cause I know a lot of people, you know, like my wife included who had to work and were just extremely busy in college. I had a lot of time just to, just to be active and physical. So I love basketball. Uh, back then I liked lifting weights, you know, uh, until one day I figured it was kind of pointless cause I'm, I'm a thin guy and I, and you don't tend to get that big when you have my frame. Uh, so anyways, but I was active with all that stuff. You know, I like just, uh, playing basketball with my friends a lot, played several times a week. And then one day, one of my knees started bothering me and it just swelled up and it never, it never went away. I iced it four or five times a day. I took lots of anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, which that's a different topic for a different day, uh, but not a good long-term solution, certainly for what I was dealing with. It took me over a year to figure out what was going on because it just started as a, as a single knee injury um, and then just progressed from there. So anyways, I won't go into the, all the details with the progression and how I got diagnosed and things like that. But since then, um, I have severe rheumatoid arthritis. So mo you know, moderate to severe is what they kind of call it. Um, if you look like my blood markers and things like that, they're all kind of on the the bad end of the scale in terms of if I have a flare up, you know, what's the chances of me actually causing joint damage? All that stuff is really high for me. Like I mentioned, strong family history, multiple family members with the similar th with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, as well as a kind of just a handful of other autoimmune diseases in my family. Never really was super serious about treating my symptoms and my disease uh, with natural medicine until my wife and I started um, considering having kids. So up until then, I was very happy just to rely on pharmaceuticals, which don't get me wrong, I still use pharmaceuticals and my life is much better because of them. Um, but I really wasn't interested in hearing about other other things I could do to reduce my pain and inflammation and, and kind of reduce my, my overall disease activity state. So it wasn't until my wife and I started um, talking about having children that it really occurred to me that some of the medications I take are pretty nasty in terms of the side effects. And, um, you know, they work by basically damaging one aspect of my health in favor of another. So it's that old saying, you know, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul is kind of how my autoimmune treatment works. Um, so all of the drugs that I take suppress my immune system because I have an overactive immune system and that's what helps me modulate my symptoms. Uh, I'd probably be in a, a world of hurt without those, but at the same time, uh, when my wife and I started having kids, one of the medications I was taking, um, I had to be off the medications for three months before we could start trying to have children just because the, the medication affected the way my DNA basically reproduced. 
Um, so not to be too gross or anything, but potentially my sperm would be defective and that could lead to birth defects within, um, the child we're trying to create. So that got me thinking, obviously I got off the medications uh, long enough. And then we, um, my wife got pregnant shortly thereafter, which was great. But then, you know, it was kind of like that aha moment. It's like, well, maybe I should try to get off this medication if I could, you know, if I could still feel good and get off of it. So that's what led me kind of on my journey to seeking out natural medicine. And that was just the very beginning. And then, um, you know, that was, that was about seven years ago, started making some changes and just experimenting, which we'll talk about that kind of going forward today is, you know, how do you know which changes are going to be good for you? And you know, what's a good place to start if you're looking to make some positive changes you know, not everyone's going to follow my route and I can certainly appreciate that. So today is more just informational about um, things you might consider. And usually when I make my laundry list, because this is a laundry list, I'm going to have eight things that you could think about doing. Um, usually what I expect people to take away is that maybe, maybe one or two of them are, you know, seem, you know, relevant to you or reasonable to you. And maybe those are things that you want to uh, look into or consider. And maybe not, maybe this is a good stage in your life just to consider the information and, you know, put it in the back of your mind and, and let it um, just kind of simmer back there for a while. So anyways, uh, that's how I've gotten to be so into natural medicine. It's a lot of firsthand experience. And then working as a physical therapist for the last 12 years, um, you know, I get to see what people are trying in their own lives. And I'm very interested in it. So I'm always asking them, what are they doing? And probably most the, the most common one that I really ask people questions about is when they lose weight. And I usually say, well, what did you do? You know, and, and we'll get into food today, um, especially. But a lot of times they'll tell me what they did to lose weight. And the interesting thing is on average, when people lose weight, uh, let's say they lose 20, 30, 50 pounds, you know, in a natural way without having like surgery or something like that, they tend to feel better throughout their body with multiple aspects of their health. And I'll tell you why I think that is as we get into the food here. But again, there's my background, just so you kind of know, um, I read about natural medicine. I, I obviously experiment on myself. I feel like I have a, a good amount of knowledge to share with you. Doesn't mean you may agree with me on all of it, but that's okay to each their own. <laughs> so good. So that's my infra, that's my introduction to today's episode. Um, why don't we get into, again, the natural ways to reduce pain and inflammation that I'm hoping will be pretty applicable to a lot of people across the board. So we're going to go over the first four today. So the first one I want to talk about and really where I feel like people get oftentimes the most bang for their buck is looking at their food. So this is actually number one and number two. So the first way that you can reduce your pain and inflammation by looking at your food is more about looking at it in terms of, um, we call it the macros. So like the macro level of food, which basically is if you look at macros, have you ever heard that term before? Uh, macros are basically just three things. It's carbohydrates, carbs, protein, and fat. So the first thing you can look at with your food, if you're looking to, again, reduce inflammation, which is the topic here, is how could you adjust your macros, so your intake? And um, just to give you some perspective on this one, this is what I just kind of alluded to earlier. This is a lot of times how people nowadays are successfully losing weight. They just adjust the type of food they're eating. So doesn't get much deeper than that. Um, and the most common example I could give you is that I have a lot of people that I talked to recently, patients and friends included, who lose weight by doing like a ketogenic diet, which if you're not familiar with the term keto or ketogenic diet, essentially what these folks are doing is they're bottoming out their carbohydrate intake and they are ramping up their fat. So you might think of it similar to like the old school Atkins diet, although I think nowadays um, keto probably has some healthier components to it because you, you are focusing on, you know, the healthy fats 
and the quality of the food as well. But that's, uh, again, probably the most success I see people having with, with weight loss um, in the clinic is they just, they really cut their carbs. And the easiest place to start, if you're thinking that's kind of a too much of a broad stroke for you, is they really cut their sugar. So um, you think of the obvious ones, things like processed sugar, any white sugar, obviously, you know, sweet drinks, pop, soda, um, energy drinks, things like that. Those are the first ones to be cut on this type of approach. And then um, I would also throw in like juice, if you drink fruit juice or... Um, I looked up V8 juice the other day and there wasn't a ton of carbohydrates in it, but certainly even the, even the juices that are branded as healthy, even if they have vegetables in it, uh, just pop over the nutrition label and check out how many sugars and how many carbs they have in it. And that'll give you a good idea. That's a, this is probably, like I said, the best way for anyone to start reducing pain and inflammation because I think it has the most bang for your buck. Um, the results tend to be quick. So it's nice, positive feedback right off the bat. You know, typically folks that start cutting out their processed sugar will report feeling better, you know, probably within a week, if not two weeks, depending on how rapidly they cut it out and things like that. So uh, those are the easy ones to start with. Like I said, any of the high sugary drinks are probably the easiest place to start. And then, I mean, if you if you know you eat a lot of sugar and other things like candy and um, gosh, like any type of bar or, um, you know, chocolate, stuff like that, then those are easy. They make sense to cut out. So, and then from there, the other thing you want to consider when you're looking at, again, the macros with your food and just changing the way you eat, um, not necessarily how much you eat, which is an important thing to consider. You're not trying to cut calories in this situation. You're just trying to swap out what I would consider the crappy calories for better calories. Um, so we're not trying to make you go hungry here in order to lose weight. And again, the topic isn't necessarily weight loss. Um, this is more inflammation, um, but they tend to go hand in hand, which is nice. So you tend to feel better and you tend to lose weight when you cut your carbs. And obviously if you're eating a high carb diet right now, uh, you might have a more dramatic effect than someone who doesn't eat a lot of carbs. So that's the, like I said, that's the first way to look at things. And, um, the easiest thing to look at is the processed sugar. And then the second thing you look at is just the other really simple carbs. So I want to close your ears for this or fast forward if you don't want to hear me uh, tell you not to eat bread. <laughs> but too late, you just heard it. Uh, so stick with me. Um, so bread, I mean, bread is the easiest one. Bread, pasta, rice, noodles. Those things are basically just carbs. And nutritionally, very little nutritional value in most of these things. I mean, sometimes they're fortified with vitamins or, you know, you get a whole grain bread versus a processed flour bread. And yeah, you can get some nutrition out of it. Um, but the way I look at it is unfortunately, there's nothing that you get out of that bread that you couldn't get in a better supply from something healthier, like a vegetable um, or, you know, like a uh, some kind of a high quality protein or fat. Again, depending on where you're at with your journey, if you're receptive to this, great. That's what you want. That's what you want to look at is any of those carbs. Essentially, when you eat those simple carbs. And so you're looking again, like bread, pasta, you know, English muffin, whatever. When you have that level of carbohydrates in your bloodstream, your bloodstream rapidly converts carbohydrates to glucose. So glucose is essentially sugar. So while you may not as, you know, think of bread as sugar, essentially it is, especially if you're eating bread by itself and it spikes your blood sugar quickly. Now you can slow down the, the level of absorption of glucose, if you, you know, if you mix your bread with some protein and fat, so say you eat it with an egg or you put almond butter or peanut butter on it, that will slow the absorption. So you may not get as fast as a blood sugar spike, uh, but you're still getting the overall uh, load of sugar carbohydrates there. Um, but what happens in your body chemically is that when you have a high level of sugar, your pancreas is gonna secrete insulin. Insulin is gonna take the excess sugar, bring it into your cells, bring a normal amount into your cells, and then the excess is gonna be converted to fat. 
And that's the key. This is why people lose weight when they cut their sugar is because they're not constantly converting sugar to fat and storing it. So that's why the ketogenic diet tends to work real well for people. Um, they're not, even though it's a high fat diet, which seems a little weird, but it actually is your, your body processes normal fat differently than it processes sugar. So again, um, people tend to feel better when they change from a high carb diet to like a higher protein diet or a higher fat diet, depending on how you do it. And they tend to lose weight. So again, this is to me probably the best place for a lot of people to start, um, because we're not asking you to cut out specific foods. Well, I am asking you to, I shouldn't say that. Um, you don't have to completely cut out bread if you don't want to. You can just lower your intake of bread or you can um, spread it out or make sure you're eating it with other other foods and things like that. And again, depending on where you're at, you might want to get dramatic and say, well, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go hardcore and cut everything for 30 days and see how it goes. Or you might just say, well, I'm going to make a little change here and there and just see, give it a little more time and see how it goes. Last thing I want to mention um, with this approach or this concept of, um, kind of lowering your sugar and carbs and, and, uh, swapping it out is that you, you do want to make sure that you're just swapping it out for other protein and fat. So those are your, again, those are your three macros. So you've got carbs. If you're going to eat less carbs, I don't want you to starve because I don't think that helps anybody. It doesn't help anyone to be hungry throughout an extended period of time as it turns out. Um, which is why pretty much every diet you ever tried has failed because you can't, it's not sustainable. And when you go hungry for long periods of time, your body eventually is going to try to store energy in the form of fat. Um, so it's not sustainable. So keep that in mind with this one that you want to increase, you know, your other caloric intake via protein, fat. We're, we're not even really talking about quality yet because that's a different tip that is going to be on round two of this podcast. You know, later on, it'll be important to, to look at high quality proteins and fats um, so keep that in mind just kind of for now. So that was tip number one, um, lower the carbs and the sugars and then increase your protein and fat. Tip two then, we're going to stick with food for a little bit. Um, and tip two may be a little bit more tricky for people depending on um, where you're at. But again, keep in mind that we're trying to reduce pain and inflammation. For the average person, there's going to be certain foods uh, that they're sensitive to or that will trigger inflammation not necessarily an allergic reaction or anything like that. You know, you would take the extreme version of someone who say has celiac disease. Not everyone with celiac disease responds aggressively, I guess, to, to gluten. So celiac disease, let me step back just for a sec. Celiac disease means that you're basically have a, an allergy to gluten. So gluten is found in wheat, barley, and rye, essentially just those three grains. Although I think there are a couple other grains, the, the older grains, but wheat, barley, and rice, people with celiac disease tend to avoid those hundred percent at all costs. And if they have a severe reaction to gluten, they can even have issues like sharing the same toaster, like a crumb can really set them off. So that's the extreme end of people with celiac. A lot of folks with celiac, um, by the numbers don't even know they have it because they don't have that extreme reaction. They're still allergic to gluten and it still is really, really inflammatory um, for their body, especially with their gut lining. And that's how they can tell. But they have more things like fatigue, you know, um, just can't get going, like fogginess, headaches, um, just other symptoms that aren't as um, aggressive for their GI system um, or their stomach. So, so that's an example of a food allergy, whereas most of us aren't going to have any specific allergy to anything we eat, but we're going to have sensitivities. And if we really tracked our food and paid attention to our food, we'd probably figure out anywhere from two to five things that for whatever reason, our bodies just don't like. And these are things that aren't easy to test for necessarily. You know, allergy testing, I think is very limited when it comes to it. If you, if you get tested for celiac, they can tell you if you have celiac, 
um, but they can't tell you if you're sensitive. So it's, it's tricky to tell. And I know a lot of people want to rely on diagnostics these days. And they want a firm answer like, okay, well, what are the two to five things that really bother me? Like, just tell me, run a blood test or run a, a poke test or whatever you want to do. Uh, but it's not always that easy. Now I'm no expert on the tests. I know, um, I've done IgG testing and things like that. So I'm not going to dive into that today because I'm no expert on that. Um, but I, I do know that I think the simplest way to do this stuff is just to pay attention to what you're eating, you know, eating, keeping a food journal and saying, well, gosh, every once in a while, I just feel horrible. You know, can we find a pattern here? Um, you know, if something is giving me stomach upset or something makes me feel really fatigued or nauseous after I eat it. And so for me, what I started with and again, you try to start with where you feel like there's the most bang for your bucks. So you feel like it's worth your time. So I started with gluten. And this again was back when um, my wife and I were, had just gotten pregnant with our, with our son. And I went and talked to a naturopath friend of mine and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking I might, I'm thinking I might be sensitive to gluten. I don't want to be sensitive to gluten. Don't get me wrong. Um, Cause back then my favorite meal was pizza and beer, which is pretty much gluten um, the whole way through. But so I talked to my friend and he said, well, you know what, just be, just be objective and kind of scientific about it and say, uh, give yourself a time period to eliminate the gluten and see how you feel, you know, track your, track your pain, your joint pain. Cause for, again, I have arthritis So track it, see how you feel. And he told me six months, which I think mentally I was willing to, I was willing to commit to three, I think, <laughs> but I said, okay, that's the way to do it. So you know, I thought that uh, gluten was a good place to start and I did, and I just tested it on myself. I said, okay, the, the only way for, for most of us to really know how we're going to feel is if you eliminate a certain food for a period of time and enough of a period of time where it could allow your system to calm down essentially. And, um, if you do want to start with gluten, keep in mind, that's one that can take a while to get out of your system. Typically they say it takes about 30 days to get out of your system. So you want to give yourself probably at least two to three months to really see if, if you can calm the inflammation down associated with the gluten. So for me personally, that worked really well. And I get, again, I know it's not going to work well for everybody, but it was definitely worth trying for me after about five weeks, completely eliminating gluten and not just going low gluten, but completely hundred percent, no gluten, you know, had to know every nutrition label, any processed food. I had to know what was in there. And uh, I felt significantly better after about five weeks. And again, I've talked to people who don't feel any better eliminating gluten, so that's fine. I guess the idea I want to try to convey today is that you really won't know until you try it. You know, you can do all the testing you want um, and you can say, well, I don't have celiac disease or, you know, didn't come up on my, um, my IgG tests as a, as a, um, like an antibody in my bloodstream or anything like that, but you really won't know until you try. So that was big for me. And that was, um, again, going back to kind of the start of my journey with all of this fun stuff. And, um, from there I just started picking out other things that I thought would have a positive impact. And fortunately, or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, it's kind of a catch 22. Most of the things that I ended up cutting out such as dairy, um, had a really positive impact on my symptoms. So again, it's kind of a catch 22 cause you know, I haven't had pizza and, and like a real beer in seven years. But at the same time, my quality of life is so much better uh, in terms of my joint pain and, and what I can and can't do. And, you know, like running around with my kids or playing basketball, like I can do a lot more now than I could seven, eight years ago. So depends on what your values are, what your priorities are, I guess. So that's number two though. Again, look at anything you think you might be sensitive to, um, allergies versus sensitivities. Just keep in mind that all of us are, are unique. So again, just because gluten and dairy 
worked well for me. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the same results. And certainly I would never try to mislead you with that and say, you know, this is what you can expect. It worked for me. It should work for you. It may not. And and that's the biggest flaw or the biggest holdback today with, with everyone being more research-based when it comes to anything in science. There's a lot of value to research. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but at the end of the day, my chemistry, my family history is very unique to me. You know, my genetics and, and yours is similarly unique to you. To a large extent, again, you just really won't know how well you could do until you try it. And that's, again, it's a simple approach to any of this stuff when you say, well, gosh, am I sensitive to this? Am I sensitive to that? Keep that in mind. And again, the big ones I would um, encourage you to look at, gluten obviously is one. Um, Other grains as well can be really inflammatory for certain people. Dairy, like I mentioned, is another one. Eggs is another common food sensitivity or allergy. And then sometimes uh, certain nuts can bother people. So if you're looking at places to start, consider those things just as your your easy places to start. Good, good. Oh, last one I kind of wrote on my sheet here because I wrote myself some notes. Um, And you might want to do earmuffs for this one too. For a lot of people, alcohol is inflammatory as well. I know uh, most of us like to have a drink here and there. But um, for a lot of us, alcohol is inflammatory, has a direct effect on the the gut lining. So the gut being um, your stomach and then your intestines. And that's where, you know, anything interacts with your body for the first time is going through that gut barrier. And uh, a lot of a lot of natural medicine, this is probably a good point to mention this too, which I'll, I'll mention it on tip four today. But a lot of natural medicine, if you talk to a naturopath, a lot of it centers around, again, we're talking about treating the whole system Uh, for inflammation versus just farming it out to different specialties. And so most of it will start with your gut health. And so that's kind of a key phrase with natural medicine. You know, can you improve the health of your gut? If you have a healthy gut, most other things fall in line. And if you consider the anatomy of your gut, essentially or functionally, it's actually external to your body. So you imagine putting food or drink into your mouth, you chew it up, you swallow it, goes into your stomach, And then as it's working its way through your intestines and your body is breaking it down and absorbing nutrients and absorbing protein and fat and and carbohydrates and things like that, um, you have your gut barrier. And so this barrier is what determines whether or not things go into your bloodstream or if they stay in your gut and then come out the other end. Um, So essentially, again, functionally, your gut is outside of your body. It just happens to run right through the middle of you. So it's kind of an interesting way to look at it. But again, most natural health starts with the gut. Heal the gut, lower the inflammation of the gut. You look at the research they've done on things like gluten or alcohol is another good one, like I just mentioned. And basically, those things have the ability to basically knock holes in the lining of your gut, which means that things that should have stayed out or should have stayed in the gut are now gaining access to your bloodstream, which is a bad thing. And if you look at your immune system, which for most of us is is uh, what's going wrong. And obviously for me, that's very applicable with with my autoimmune disease. Um, Your immune system is just sitting on the other side of that gut, of that gut barrier. It's kind of like customs at an airport. Like they're just waiting for you to come through and they're going to scan you. They're going to check you. Um, Unfortunately, with today's standards, they're going to pat you down and they're going to keep you for a few hours sometimes. So that's your immune system. It's just sitting there. 70% of your immune system is just sitting outside that gut barrier waiting to look at things, make sure that it's not a foreign and subs- a foreign substance or something that would you know be considered like an invader that your immune system would want to get on top of quickly. So very essential function for your health. And the other interesting thing with your gut is that even though 
you know, it's a, it's a pretty big surface area if you look at it. Every surface of your gut is only one cell thick. So it folds in on, among itself, you know, millions of times as little, these little kind of like hair cell type things. It's not a hair cell, but um, the shape is interesting. But any way that your gut is formed, at any given point of your gut, the only thing keeping from that substance that you just ingested out of your bloodstream is only one cell thick. So if you have something like gluten coming through that's binding to certain receptors and it's opening up holes in your gut, like that's a negative effect. Uh, it's, it's a really direct effect. Or again, alcohol, which is punching holes in your gut and destroying parts of the cells. All of a sudden, these things that weren't designed, like larger protein is a good example. It's not designed to go through your gut barrier until it's broken down into smaller components. And some of these proteins you just don't want in your bloodstream anyways, especially if you're sensitive to them. But if these have the opportunity now to float through a hole in your gut barrier into your bloodstream and there's your immune system waiting, your immune system is going to identify it. And then for someone like me, it's going to get overactive. And that's the thing that happens to most of us with autoimmune diseases, which is so common nowadays, it's, uh, it's incredible, is that your immune system is overreacting. And certainly one of the biggest reasons it's overreacting is because it's constantly encountering things it doesn't know what to do with. And so it's trying to get rid of them. Keep that in mind, uh, I guess, for the bigger picture when you're looking at eliminating certain certain triggers or food sensitivities, that that's why you're doing it. You're looking to contribute to the health of your gut and potentially heal your gut so that your body can, can keep things out or depending on how you look at it, keep things in, in the gut, out of the body. So that's number two. Kind of long-winded, but um, obviously you can tell uh, it's kind of a passion of mine with uh, with the food. Uh, not always the easiest thing changes for people to make, but again, whether or not you're ready to make changes now or you just want information, you know, we're all a little different there, so so that's just fine. So let's move on to number three now. So we've covered food. Um, number three is a little bit more of a general topic, and it's just decreasing your overall toxic load. I definitely think food is probably the most important thing you can do, but there's a lot of other things that can negatively affect your body and terms of ramping up your immune system. And again, I think, again, you can just kind of look at this as your toxic load. So one of the, the things that is most applicable to this is reducing like your pesticide exposure. So you look at organic food versus conventional food. And the biggest difference between an organically grown, let's say pepper and um, a conventional pepper is just how much, how many uh, chemicals were used on the food that you're eating. And um, is the chemical still on the food or was it, you know, in the soil and in the water and somehow taken up by the food? So that's, that's one of the biggest things I look at with um, reducing your toxic load is just those pesticides and the chemical fertilizers and things like that. Not always, again, this does lead back to food again, actually, because not always something people want to consider because you're looking at eating potentially organic or just eating local foods that, you know, the farmer, you can communicate with them and say it hasn't been sprayed with pesticides. So sometimes, obviously, the, the biggest barrier here is going to be the cost. We've been slowly eating more organic foods over the last five, six years. And depending on what you're trying to eat organic, the cost can be significant compared to just a conventional item of food. But I think it's, it's getting better overall as the demand increases. There's more local farms and there's more smaller farms that really aren't charging you an arm and a leg anymore like they used to. But one useful thing to look at if you're considering eating organic and you just don't want to make the huge financial commitment yet, is that if you look online, they've got what's called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. And so the Dirty Dozen is basically just the top 12 foods that have the most pesticide residue on them, like brought to market. And so you look at these dozen foods and you say, well, either avoid these foods um, conventionally, or those are the ones that you might consider buying organically. 
Um, I didn't print off the list uh, for me to look at, but common ones on the Dirty Dozen um, are apples, strawberries, grapes. Gosh, those are the only three I can think of off the top of my head. But again, you can look at that list and say, okay, well, these are the ones where you say, if you think there's some value in decreasing your toxic load, to decrease those ones, because those pesticides really aren't going to have anything good to do in your body, and it's going to increase the inflammation in your body. may not be as dramatic as some of the food stuff we just talked about, but certainly something to consider long-term when you're looking at reducing pain and inflammation is that if you can limit your exposure to these toxic chemicals, which hopefully we can agree these are toxic chemicals, that it's going to have a positive impact on your health. So that's the Dirty Dozen. The Clean 15 are basically just the exact opposite. So these are foods, again, that you might feel pretty comfortable eating conventionally just in terms of the pesticide uh, residue. And the top two off the top of my head there um, are usually pineapple and avocado. So these are typically foods where the pesticide just doesn't tend to linger or it's got a thick hole that you don't eat. So like on a pineapple or an avocado, you're not going to eat the skin around the outside there. So essentially you're getting rid of most of the pesticide. So those are good things to consider. The other thing, uh, which I mentioned earlier too, is that eventually, which is going to be on part two, you want to look at your nutrient density. So when you're looking at locally raised foods with different types of soil, the pesticides aren't the entire picture in terms of your health and nutrition. But again, if you're just looking at toxic load alone, I think it's worth considering, um, especially with that dirty dozen list that you might consider going organic or local, you know, talk to a local farmer who says, yeah, we don't spray our apples or we don't spray our strawberries or anything like that. So that's on the food side. The other thing you might consider with decreasing your toxic load is just all the chemicals that you might find in and around your house. Outside your house, probably the most, you know, the easiest, most common example is your exposure to things like Roundup or other weed killers or chemical fertilizers. Regardless on what the research is saying now or whether you agree with the research, most of the research right now is saying Roundup causes cancer. People, you know, research is always debatable, but that's a pretty commonly accepted thing right now um, in the media um, is that, you know, people that are exposed to Roundup, especially even just even just residential exposure, you know, using it at your own house for several years have higher rates of cancer. Uh, so obviously... Uh, not a good idea to have that much exposure. So that's outside your house. You know, any of those those chemicals that you're using on your lawn, those are probably the biggest ones, you know, consider some of that. The active chemical, by the way, in Roundup is glyphosate, which was linked back to, you know, same company that produced Agent Orange, Agent Orange back in Vietnam. Um, maybe not as extreme of a chemical as the as the um, the other chemicals that were in Agent Orange, but um, definitely in the same family and having similar increased rates of cancer for people. So consider those. The other ones that you might consider inside your house are like your cleaning products and things like shampoo, conditioner, soap, um, makeup, lotion. And I don't know how detailed you want to get on this. I'm not. I'm not as detailed as my wife is about these things. Um, but there's certain chemicals in those that um, can definitely cause issues with people in terms of their immune system, their inflammation. So again, just something to consider. Uh, we use a lot of like baking soda and vinegar in our house and a lot of people use essential oils as well in different mixtures and a little more natural products for like disinfecting and cleaning and stuff like that. So there are quite a few natural alternatives out there for pretty much anything. Again, shampoo, cleaning solutions, what you clean your countertops with, what kind of dish soap you use, any of those things. They pretty much are natural products for those. And one tip you might use too when you're looking at like soap or shampoo is that a lot of these stores now sell that kind of thing in bulk. So if you go to like a Huckleberry's uh, main market downtown, Pilgrim's out in Coeur d'Alene, um, they have quite an area of bulk. And that's where we save a lot of our money when we're buying things 
especially if you go like on a bulk sale day. They have these every couple months where it's like 25% off all bulk items. And um, so that's a good way to, you know, make some positive changes with those chemicals without necessarily spending a ton of money on them. Good. So that is number three, decrease your toxic load. Um, we're going to go through one more for today and then we'll wrap things up. And number four, kind of tie back into food in your gut is uh, probiotics. So probiotics is an interesting one. They do a lot of research these days on probiotic bacteria and just your gut health again in general, all these bacteria that live inside of you and that have um, a vital role, it appears to be, in the modulation of your immune system, the communication from your gut to your brain. Like they're, they're you know, now they're researching all these things and, and figuring out new stuff probably every day. Um, although it's, it's a little bit above my head and complex at times, but uh, in general, it appears that probiotics are very beneficial for your gut health. Now, again, that's kind of a general statement. Um, again, I'm not a food scientist or a microbiologist or anything like that, but in general, most people will tell you that having a probiotic, you know, in your diet or a probiotic supplement is going to have a positive impact on your health and just contributing to the diversity of, of, um, the different types of bacteria in life that live inside your gut. So there's different ways to get probiotics. Uh, like I said, there's supplements. I imagine with supplements, there's varying types and different, different qualities because there's different strains of bacteria. And then, you know, I, I think it's great if you can get some of these probiotics, you know, kind of from the source. So you look at um, over the history of food, especially you look at people fermenting food um, for a long time and basically as a way to, to store food, you know, to conserve food, things like sauerkraut, um, yogurt, kimchi, depending on if you make your own pickles. So they used to ferment pickles. Now, if you get a pickle in a jar, typically it's just been brined. So it's kind of like a dead pickle, but you can still, like my wife just made pickles last week and she fermented them for, I think four or five days and they were just amazing. So maybe kind of a lost art for some of us, but definitely a lot of information online or you can buy whole books on how to ferment food. And it usually takes a handful of days and usually it just takes salt and water and then whatever spices you want to throw in there. Um, so pickles, you know, fermented pickles. Um, I've got patients who tell me that they ferment their beans out of their garden. Um, and other drinks now too. Kombucha is one of my favorites. It's fermented tea. You get things like kefir, which is a different type of fermentation that I've never tried. Um, but there's a lot of probiotics that go, that go, um, that you can ingest within your gut within just fermenting foods. So that's pretty cool. And again, I, I'm not the uh, utmost expert on uh, gut health or probiotics, but in general, that's a common piece of advice you're going to get. And the healthier your gut is, I can pretty confidently tell you the better you're going to feel. Another interesting thing I want to mention about the gut too, uh, when you talk about these bacteria is that you have trillions of bacteria living essentially inside your gut. And if you look at it by the numbers, you actually are more bacteria than you are human cells, which is kind of weird. Um, obviously, the bacteria are smaller than the average human cell. But if you look at it just by the numbers, you have these trillions of bacterial cells inside your body. Although, again, functionally, they're outside your body, um, but they're within your gut. And then you have more bacterial cells than you do human cells. So I think that's interesting and probably just highlights the importance of having a healthy you know, robust, probably diverse level of bacteria growing inside your gut. And again, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to understanding 
you know, the intricacies of these bacteria, how many you want, um, you know, what's the, what's the mix you want, because there are issues with bacterial overgrowth with people too. And so, but you know, certain types of bacteria, which ones are more beneficial for which types of, of diseases they are, like I said, researching this stuff. Um, I just am not up to date on all of it. So I'm just going to give you the general strokes for today and say that for the average person, um, putting some probiotic types of foods or supplements into their life is going to have a positive effect on their gut. So that is number four for today. So um, those are my top four that I wanted to share today. And like I said, we'll, we'll visit the next four, which I think are equally important on another episode of the podcast. And uh, hopefully... Uh, I didn't overwhelm you with anything too much. And, and again, I just want to reiterate that it, it just depends on what you're looking for. Um, you know, they talk about some people are ready to take action right away and some people are just wanting information. They just want to kind of digest things for a little bit, you know, just kind of, I think they would call this like the contemplative type phase. They teach you these things in school, but that was a long time ago for me, but they used to teach us that with our patient care and say, okay, well, you know, some patients are ready to go. They're ready to do exactly what you tell them. And others are just, you know, they're kind of thinking it over. They're a little more skeptical or they're just not at that point in their life where they feel comfortable um, committing to any change. So that's totally cool. And I understand that. So hopefully anything I said today um, just gives you some ideas and, you know, if you're ready to take one or two and run with them, then go ahead. Uh, love to hear, you know, any feedback from you about that. Um, you know, so certainly shoot me an email after listening to this, or if you've tried certain things and, um, whether you agree or disagree, I, I like, uh, I like the feedback from all angles anyway. So, and, and again, I kind of mentioned that too, but not everything that I do or say is going to work for you just because it worked for me. And I get that. Um, and, and a good example of that, by the way, is, um, I basically follow the paleo diet, which is kind of like the caveman diet. And, um, you know, I'm almost like the opposite of like a vegan, um, doesn't mean that being a vegan wouldn't work for you. You know, not eating any animal products is what um, vegans do. So no meat, um, typically no dairy or anything like that. So it doesn't mean that that wouldn't work perfectly well for you for whatever reason. And, you know, you get into things like different chemistry, different blood types. That's kind of an interesting route to go down maybe for another day. But uh, so just keep that in mind. I'm not saying that my approach is better than your approach. Uh, just that this is what works for me and, and it makes sense to me. So thought I would share some tips with you. So there you go. So that's, uh, we'll just wrap that up for today. Um, any information you have want to get back to me, uh, my email is always at the, the end of the show notes, but it's just Luke at Gordon physical therapy.com. And I um, hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'll get back onto some more guest interviews very soon. I've got some good ones lined up. Um, going to talk to a friend of mine who's a chiropractor who specializes in, um, upper cervical chiropractic and headaches. So she's got a really interesting approach. And then I've got some other, you know, kind of fun ones lined up that I haven't quite, um, nailed down yet, but should be a good lineup for the fall and the winter. And, and we'll get back onto, um, those guest interviews soon. So again, thanks for listening for today. Hope you found something useful. Uh, let me know what you think. You can always, like I said, email me. I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast sponsored by Gordon Physical Therapy. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Spokane community, visit www.stayhealthyspokane.com. And we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. Stay humble.